Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today we are honored to have as our guest, Robert Lutz. Bob Lutz is the Pauli Truish Distinguished Professor of International Legal Studies, now emeritus, but has held those positions at Southwestern Law School for over 40 years. Bob is now being honored and will be over the year by Southwestern and the Southwestern Law Review. The Law Review, in fact, is doing a festrift, an academic celebration of Bob's achievements through his lifetime. And he represents the career of an individual, a pioneer, and a person who's had an enormous impact in law practice, not only in Los Angeles and California, but nationally and around the world. In 2016, for example, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award of the International Law Section of the American Bar Association, of which he has been chaired, and we'll we'll talk about which he has been chair, and we'll talk about that. In 2014, he received the Warren Christopher International Lawyer of the Year Award from the California State Bar International Law Section. He has received virtually every award that anyone in his area of practice can receive. He has taught internationally, and these are the countries not just on which he's gone for a lecture, but been on the faculty of universities in the country over this 40-plus year period in Australia and Austria and Argentina, China. He began in China in the 1980s, in Thailand, in Mexico, in Germany, in Moldova. And in addition to that, he has lectured, I think, in over 40 or 50 countries in the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and go over this remarkable career. Thank you so much, Howard. Uh, let me ask sure. you, of all the things that we've talked about you're doing, um, one of the things that struck me the most, and we'll talk about because you've been chair of virtually every committee that exists for international law, but from August 2001 to August 2002, you were chair of the International Law Section of the American Bar Association. And that means that one month after you began as chair of the International Law Section, 9-11 occurred. And there you were with its international implications and a a central role in the ABA. What did you do? What happened? What was the effect of 9-11? How did the International Law Section of the ABA under your leadership respond and what did it do? That's uh, certainly an an interesting part of my career uh, and an ominous uh, beginning of my chairmanship. I, uh, uh, in August, I was, I was an elected chair and uh, in uh, September 11th uh, of that year, of course, uh, the terrorist acts occurred. And in the process, we had done a lot of advanced planning for a meeting of our section, which occasionally, very occasionally, went abroad, primarily to Canada and England. Uh, but uh, plans had been made to go to Mexico, which we had, uh, as a section, gone about five or six years earlier to Mexico City. But uh, it was arranged by others than me, but we were. Um, scheduled to have our fall meeting in Monterrey, Mexico. And so um, I had to uh, engage in trying to organize that and discovered that we only had one member 
of her section in Monterrey, Mexico. <clears throat> and so the organization had to take a form of uh, ad hocish, uh, of an ad hocish nature. And I engaged in primarily with the CEOs of major corporations in Monterrey um, to uh, organize the legal community to respond to that. And we had one of, actually the outcome was we had one of the, our more successful turnouts for that particular meeting, although we had substantial resistance by members of our own section that feared um, bad things would happen should we wander abroad. But uh, we made substantial precautions and uh, undertook them, and, and it was quite a, an interesting and successful meeting. Well, that's an, an example of crisis management. But you've played such a major role in the ABO through the year in which you were its chair and constantly. What are the major things as you look back on that you've worked? Let's start with the ABA, that you've worked through the ABA International Section that had the greatest impact, where you put the greatest effort and are proudest of? Well, in order to uh, prepare for that meeting, we, of course, had to get a large percentage of our active members to participate, uh, encouraging them uh, and in light of 9-11, only a month before, uh, it was uh, a difficult task. We had to call upon some of the other leaders of the section, ABA president, and I engaged in various discussions. He strongly supported me our effort, as did a number of our important members. And I might add that this story did not concern and the issue of, of how to respond in times of crisis did not end with uh, October of uh, 2001, because in the spring we had already scheduled a program a large, our largest meeting of the year, our spring program in New York City. And we were, we turned out to be the first major legal group to actually hold a conference in, in New York City, because there was a great deal of exist, uh, resistance and concerns about uh, the security of doing so where so many international lawyers would, would um, arrive and be in, within the, in the group um, that a, a terrorist act might, might well occur. So there were lots of precautions that had to be taken, lots of encouragement had to be done with some of the other leaders. There were many leaders that were resistant that tried to have me change the course of our programming and so on. But we, uh, but I, I managed to overcome that, and we continue to be a successful group. Well, that was great crisis management. Take us back. You've been. What led you? A double question. What led you to focus on international law so many years ago, above all other areas, when it honestly, especially in California, was less a focus of interest, both of practitioners and the academy. What led to international law? And on, on top of that, what led to Southwestern? Interesting questions. Um, 
I'll take the first one. Um, I'm a San Diegan by birth. So I live on the border. Although the border was fairly uh, non, uh, was not a major impediment to interaction when I was born. <clears throat> but there was a, a economic, significant economic difference between the two areas of Tijuana, which is the border city in Mexico, and San Diego. Um, and in addition to that geographical reality, uh, I'm the son of a Canadian mother. So I have that type of uh, internationality. And my father was, although a New Yorker, uh, had, had, had been in the Navy and traveled all over the world. So he brought that interest to me. Uh, and I, from an early age, I can remember being interested in cultures, in religions, different religions, and, and philosophies, and so on. What about and, in law school? You at UC Berkeley Law at a time when we called it Bolt Hall. Uh, it, did you develop an interest there? Who did you work with, and who were you influenced with at Berkeley in terms of an interest in international law? Well, we didn't. There wasn't that much uh, at the law school. Um, Professor Stefan Reisenfeld, uh, Reisenfeld was was there, um, and he he took a great interest in it. Frank Newman, who later became a, a, a justice of the California Supreme Court taught a course um, uh, in international law uh, that wasn't really well attended. And uh, that was pretty much it, although there was a faculty that had international interests. And um, uh, well, Professor Buxbaum was another professor. All of these um, professors I named, uh, Professor Ahrenswag, they all had uh, European roots, uh, and they had come to the U.S. as refugees during the war. And so um, they brought a, a, an interest in that. But uh, the uh, focus on international came slowly at, at Berkeley at that time. Later on, it, it, it flourished. But what did uh, catch my attention and many others was the issue over the environment uh, and the budding interest in how to deal with environmental issues, primarily environmental pollution, natural resource management, and so on. And as a consequence, um, I and a small group of others uh, decided that uh, what we needed to do as, as law students, we were searching for opportunities to engage in reality at the law school. Uh, and, uh, and a number of us got involved in clinical programs that were not yet clinical programs, but were adjuncts to different efforts by faculty or by nearby um, uh, 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 defense groups that were interested in protecting certain interests. And that comes people. that comes full circle because, of course, today international environmental law is such an important uh, area and one you've worked in. But I'm really interested in when you first got into the international area, 
One of the programs that you helped develop and work with, and this was some time ago, I think in the early 80s, if I remember correctly, was in China. You helped to develop an international student law program in China, uh, what is really now quite a long time ago. Tell us how that came about uh, and what took your interest to there and, and, and how that got set up. Well, 1981, I had just uh, I joined the faculty of Southwestern in 78 and had tenure by 1980. And um, I went to the dean and I said, you know, we really should reach out to and develop a, a foreign law study program to introduce our students to the cultures, legal cultures of other countries and so on and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> I said, um, you know, a real challenge would be to do something in China where no one's, where the country is, is coming out of its cultural revo revolution and it has no law really. Um, it has traditions, but no law, has no legal institutions. It's going to be a, an opportunity for students to see law and legal institutions in the making. And so I got to work on that and uh, took a trip in 82 to uh, China, which was uh, difficult even to get in uh, as without any, any special credentials and uh, managed to connect with a, an American practitioner that had developed a law practice around a, a business representation uh, in a type of in-house counsel for different companies in China. And, and he had connections with the, uh, the dean of the law school in Guangzhou. Guangzhou was a sister city of Los Angeles. And that was a natural type of connection. That's where I was uh, heading. And it was also the English language university of the multiple specialized universities China organized at that time. They had Russian university, a French university, and so on and so forth. But so what 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 was the program? What was the program that was set up? The program was to was to um, take uh, students and in fact uh, a number of uh, practicing lawyers <clears throat> to China and teach teach a curriculum. Uh, one course was focused on international trade uh, issues, um, primarily how China traded with other countries and how the U.S. traded with other countries. You could compare the two. And um, a second course focused on comparative law in the area of contract and um, criminal law. Uh, and a colleague of mine, uh, Anita Glasgow, taught that course. Um, and together we lived in a special uh, foreign expert housing on the edge of the campus kept cloistered there and uh, and we were we held classes in in that location and brought in some some uh, faculty we invited the Chinese uh, professors and students to come and occasionally they did we had minders um, who followed us everywhere but uh, the overall impact was to do the course 
and then to launch into a travel program around the country. So after the course of four weeks was, was taken place with a lot of uh, midday and evening uh, touring in the immediate area to different cultural uh, locations, we flew to Beijing, uh, spent several days at Beijing Uni University, invited uh, journalists and uh, Chinese professors to talk to talk to the students and so on, and and uh, ex uh, visited various monuments and various institutions there. And how has that went, uh, how has that worked out over the years? There has now been since then uh, an accelerated, most recently, a huge interest in legal education other, in China. Other schools have have t picked it up. We. We uh, carried it on uh, uh, one more time. Um, there was a concern within our faculty, primarily administration, that we didn't have enough roots. Uh, Chinese speakers, for example, on the faculty and so on to successfully prolong our involvement. And so the decision was made um, five years afterwards to um, reduce our involvement. But we had a very successful involvement and the relationships uh, continued for a number of years uh, later. Now, it's a real, a real pioneering effort. And I, I remember people talking about it and the fact that it was a pioneering effort and it gave a lot of people from other institutions confidence in trying to move ahead uh, and set up programs in China. So it was a pioneering effort that really paved the way as, as true pioneering efforts do. Uh, so after China, what area of international education and, and uh, practice did you most focus on uh, after focusing so much on, on the China program? It seemed to me that a major uh, aspect of international cultural exchange, you know, legal cultural exchange, derived out of um, disputes between private parties and states. Um, and therefore, uh, I thought that an interesting focus would be on the, dis the major dispute settlement process uh, in international commerce, and that is arbitration rather than litigation. And, and actually mediation was rarely talked about back then. So I began to school myself in that. I had actually started earlier um, by being appointed by this. I, I was a litigator in practice. So I um, approached a superior court that was engaged in a domestic arbitration program, mandatory arbitration program. And I became an arbitrator, active arbitrator for the superior court in a couple of cases a month. I would handle and uh, just got used to the process of, of being an arbitrator in that in that context, and that evolved into international. But of course, again, this was this was very early. This was in the eighties, even early eighties, even yeah. years before the adoption of the International Arbitration and Conciliation Act uh, in California. And international arbitration has been a substantial focus of yours 
over the years, its importance has grown. You've mentioned it in terms of investment, investor state, and private parties. So let's talk about your role in, in the extraordinary growth of international arbitration in California. You were involved uh, in the work on the International uh, uh, Commercial Arbitration and Conciliation Act in California. You were part of the group that worked on that in terms of advancing California law uh, to promote international arbitration here. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, yes, I was about at 19... Um, 84, a group of us from the county bar, the Los Angeles County Bar International Law Section, uh, got together about four of us, five of us, and we decided to uh, create a, a new entity that would be uh, an institution that would educate people about, about international arbitration and make Los Angeles, a key area uh, for businesses to arbitrate um, issues and uh, to develop uh, a capacity to do so. We, we discovered that the legal foundations were fairly weak. So we formed, I was chairman of the board at the time of this group and we formed a committee to uh, draft a, a law which ultimately became the California International Commercial and Conciliation Act. And of course, international arbitration uh, during that period, but in the last 20 years or plus since the law passed, uh, more than that, uh, has become a major factor of practice. I, I see the, the trade publications now are saying that the, the big law, the large firms are all looking for people in international arbitration practice because it's one of the great growth areas uh, today uh, in terms of business. Why has it become, why has international arbitration generally, and why in California has it now become so important that all practitioners pay attention to it if firms are looking for specialists in it? Why, why is it developed that way? Well, because uh, first of all, much business is conducted internationally today when it wasn't years ago. Uh, it was sort of tangential to different uh, arms of activity of, of, of different uh, businesses. But today it becomes a fundamental area of growth and, and development. And as a consequence, um, almost any legal uh, relationship has an international component to it. Uh, that means that there, there, there can be disputes that arise out of that interaction. Um, and, and there are, uh, and they can be resolved by litigation in one or the other's jurisdiction sport, or by an arbitration that can uh, avoid that type of limitation. Uh, jurisdictional limitation and so on. Yeah, I want to and talk so a great deal. Arbitration is attractive. I want to talk a great deal more about that. Not only the growth of international arbitration, but the continued growth of importance of all international uh, issues in in a widespread uh, area of Cal California law. But let's take a break first. For so those of you listening, listeners to this podcast should know that you can get MCLA credit, one hour of MCLA credit through the Daily Journal, and we'll now take a short break so you can hear how that MCLE credit can be obtained. 
The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. The Daily Journal doesn't just feature stories from our staff of reporters. We also rely on columns from attorneys, judicial officers, and legal experts like you to inform the legal community through our perspective coverage. If there's a column you would like to write, or to get more information on writing for The Daily Journal, contact our associate legal editor, Elon Isaacs, at the email in the description of this episode. We're now back from the break, and we just began a really just began a discussion of the importance and growth of international arbitration. I will say, Bob, I, I can't remember speaking to a, any friend of mine in, in practice, whether in a large firm, medium-sized, or small firm, when I asked that amazingly had not had to deal with some international issue in the practice, whether representing a, a vendor or supplier that dealt internationally, even family law issues that developed very significant move away uh, issues, inheritance issues, depending upon uh, the residents of the parties involved. Uh, because of the way the world has, has become globalized, because of the nobility, because of California as central to that globalization, the scope of the entertainment industry and the technology industry. Uh, and perhaps those of you listening have the same experience, but everyone I've spoken to over the past several years has told me when they thought about it amazingly, how international issues uh, projected into their practice. So does that, that goes to what you've done in international legal education because you have developed, tell us about the, the, uh, the curriculum that is necessary in legal education for law students to develop awareness, how to deal with and how to get involved in these international issues. I often tell students that are searching for expertise in the area of international practice, that there are really three categories of courses that will provide them with a, uh, an appreciation and even an understanding of, of international legal practice. First one that I often uh, encourage students to consider is public international law, which gets students to understanding the role of states and their limitations and their and their porousness, um, the ability of, uh, of uh, uh, transnational activity and transnational transaction as a consequence, the, the importance of, of conventions between states uh, to provide an umbrella uh, structure for much uh, commercial legal uh, activity and so on. And also the, the appreciation of sources of law. And that has changed dramatically in the last 40 years um, of practice and of, of activity uh, here, not only in the United States, but in other countries. The role of, of uh, 
international agreements uh, <clears throat> within a framework like an investor, uh, a bit of bilateral investment treaty um, can be very uh, significant. And the uh, recognition of uh, soft law, which has grown up in this process and, and actually uh, has hardened and, and the influence of uh, non-governmental organizations in the process of, of adopting um, best practices and so on. And then there's been the development uh, in the public area of such institutions as the WTF and, and the NAFTA, the trading agreement or the US MCA. And um, at the human rights end, uh, uh, human rights, uh, although conventionally based initially, has uh, wandered into the category of business activity and there are many uh, best practices that business prescribes with respect to human rights today that almost have a hard law con component. No, I think that the, those are very so important. So that's, that's I'm, I'm being long-winded, but that's yeah. uh, the first course. And then the other course that I suggest is international business transactions, uh, where students learn how law crosses boundaries and uh, how you can frame things in such a way, how you resolve disputes, um, how you comply with domestic uh, legal rules that may be derived from international. Third category would be some form of comparative or foreign law study, where you actually learn how other countries engage in similar problems, but have different outcomes or approaches. And uh, that introduces students to to a useful category of experiences that I think um, can can give them a very good idea of what the international system and its legal component is all about. No, never long-winded. You're never long-winded, Bob. It's just there's so many ideas that they're, they're all so sparkling that I really want to come in and, and make comments on them. But you know, there are a couple of things. One is I think people in international practice, many don't realize the LA County Law Library has I think the greatest collection in international arbitration, international law, outside of any law library in the United States outside the Library of Congress. Uh, it's an amazing collection. Uh, most of it is I think is not online, so it's a very, in, in some terms, uh, older fashion, though I don't know that that's exactly the word to apply here. But anyone who's involved in international arbitration or national legal issues in California should know that there in the L.A. County Law Library is a treasure trove available, I think, no place else outside the Library of Congress and perhaps in some cases a few leading university law libraries. It's a real treasure. And the other comment you... The ability to borrow, by the way, cross-borrow is also available, so that should be an important understanding. Just adds to the resources, yeah. And you know, you mentioned uh, how important the things you've mentioned illustrate why international law practice has, has become so critical. Uh, we look at the current uh, intersection between the privacy laws and electronic resource limitation laws of the European Union, of the EU, 
that have affected and have affected everyone in, in, in California. You, you see the news about talk, uh, talk of international tax treaties controlling corporate taxation. And the other thing you've mentioned is we speak about human rights and you don't think of that usually in the, con in, in, in the immediate context, but it has such a huge impact on, on supply chain reputation. Uh, that has impacted so many uh, co uh, companies throughout the world. So these uh, areas uh, just are, uh, uh, you know, emphasize how important uh, the international area is. So let me go on to some of the, the current things that you're working on, which, which I think are really important. You mentioned, for example, NAFTA and the, its, its revision, the USMCA, and there are now important committees on that that you are actively involved in today in terms of your continuing work in, in, in international law. Tell us about those. Well, there are a couple of um, advisory committees. The U.S. government employs advisory committees in an effort to make a connection with practice and what's happening in the world vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, governance. And so uh, private persons, private lawyers, are primarily the component of or constituents of, of these advisory committees. There happens to be an advisory committee that um, was created <clears throat> under NAFTA originally, um, and now under USMCA, under a little different criteria uh, uh, that focuses on private commercial dispute resolution. So within the USMCA and the three countries involved, there are no provisions under the, the convention that's, that prescribes specific rights or responsibilities of, of private commercial uh, vendors or purchasers, but under um, this advisory committee, we are given a task to uh, review uh, issues that arise, for example, in the enforcement of, of arbitration agreements uh, uh, between the different countries and, 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 and to prescribe um, reforms or suggested uh, reforms uh, to address those types of issues that may arise. And we recently formed, uh, reformed from the NAFTA advisory group. I served on that for virtually 20 years. And, and um, usually you want to see a turnover in those types of groups, but the value of, of longevity is that there's a, uh, a sensitivity of where we came from and where we have to go. No, I think and if I can interrupt on that, you want to mix in the committees. You want a mix of, of wisdom from experience that stays on and bringing on new people dealing with current things as well. But you want to make sure that the, the policies of turnover doesn't deprive you of the experience and wisdom. And that's the ideal mix. And that's the role you've right. played over time being on the committee for so long in terms of NAFTA and now USMCA. There's another committee that that is worth knowing about, and I've had the privilege of being on that too, an advisory committee to the legal advisor of the of the State Department uh, on public international law. So we meet uh, once or twice a year uh, at the behest of the legal advisor 
uh, of the State Department. And he or she convenes the group and we uh, meet for usually two days and uh, over different topics. And we basically, these are topics that the legal advisor wants advice on. And we, uh, and a group, a larger group than the one with respect to USMCA, uh, about 30 people that are that are selected really by the legal advisor. And the legal advisor, uh, so I think for those who don't actively work in the area, the, the, the title legal advisor is used, but that's the person that's essentially the general counsel to the Department of State. I mean, that's, that's the role it's played. It's simply designated the legal advisor, but it's the person who plays the very important role of general counsel to the State Department. Right. And there are so many, many prominent uh, people who have come from practice into that position and some who have been grown, grown in that position and went, went into practice to, to serve in, in other capacities. Well, tell us about, again, we focused through the USMCA and NAFTA on, on the private commercial arbitration. What do you see either within USMCA or generally the challenges today to the growth of private commercial arbitration? Well, um, I, I would be remiss, of course, Howard, if I didn't mention that um, one of the accomplishments here in California was to form the California International Arbitration Council, which you were very prominently involved with. And, um, and that's been uh, I think an important aspect of development of arbitration uh, and hopefully it will continue. There are groups um, that have sprung up that are offering arbitration uh, services, uh, JAMS, uh, the uh, Santa Clara group uh, and, and others, <clears throat> but um, in, in many cases, and, and in many cases, it's important to have a marketing aspect to, to uh, the idea of encouraging people to consider arbitration or other alternative dispute resolution uh, mechanisms. So um, I think uh, one of the important things is to provide a legal carpet, so to speak, uh, that facilitates the uh, availability and use of uh, arbitration. And uh, due to our uh, efforts here in California, we were successful in, in opening up uh, arbitration to international arbitration, commercial arbitration to uh, the involvement of foreign lawyers who could participate in um, hearings and so on without having to uh, invo involve themselves in a very bureaucratic process of being qualified here in California. Yeah, that's a very important comment to make in terms of California. There were very difficult restrictions on lawyers outside the United States and even outside the state of California participating in purely international commercial arbitrations in California. Those issues have been resolved statutorily, and it is now open the fair statement without going to the technicalities is that any lawyer from any place in the world can appear in California in an international arbitration 
uh, without being a member of the California Bar, without having to go through a, a, uh, a process of, of, of approval. And that's become a, a very important factor uh, in the growth of, of international arbitration in California. And of course, the providers, there are places, and I know JAMS does, just to, to mention it, that have built special rooms. JAMS has an international arbitration room in, in, the, in Los, at several of its resource centers that include uh, the kind of technology that's required for simultaneous translations uh, as proceedings go on, and that's a very important part of, of having the international arbitration process work. So the growth of international arbitration in California uh, will continue. And Bob, uh, you've been a, a significant part of that, and, and the entire bar and California business uh, owes you a debt for the work that you've done over the years in doing this. We've been talking about international arbitration, the growth of international law. It's, those are among news stories that are regularly covered by the Daily Journal. The Daily Journal covers many aspects of regular news, including what we've been talking about. Let's take another break and hear about some of the news that the Daily Journal is currently covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by the Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of June 21st. The L.A. County Bar has a new chair of their Professional Responsibility and Ethics Committee, and she's got an ambitious agenda. Jenner and Block partner Kirsten Hickspear specializes in malpractice and says she sees a lot of misinformation and problems for unwary lawyers. The committee plans to issue guidance on attorneys using social media and on conflicts that arise from lawyers frequently changing firms. Another issue they plan to tackle arose from the pandemic, and that is whether a California-licensed attorney can practice from another state, even if they're only serving California-based clients. And lastly, the committee will look at how to handle the possible introduction of legal paraprofessionals in the state. They plan to look at recommendations from the Bar's working group and analyze how it will impact the ethical requirements lawyers are already obligated to follow. The Los Angeles County Superior Court website partially crashed after being overrun with people tuning in to listen to pop star Britney Spears testifying in her conservatorship hearing. Judge Brenda Penny severed the connection after raising concerns that confidential documents were given to the press and someone had been recording the hearing through the remote listening function. Though the website became functional again at the end, it appears it's not an isolated problem. Attorneys have reported problems with the remote technology since the court started using it during the pandemic, but this is the first time the entire system has crashed. The activist who helped put Prop 65 on the ballot says she thinks the state isn't doing enough to protect the law. Penny Newman's attorney submitted a motion to intervene in a lawsuit filed by the State Chamber of Commerce seeking to prevent lawsuits over Prop 65 and to bar warnings on food items containing acrylamide. Though the Attorney General's office declined to comment on the case, a lawsuit from last year could give insight into why the office might not be enthusiastic about acrylamide cases. A group of companies won a case to remove Prop 65 warnings from coffee, saying there wasn't sufficient proof to say the levels of acrylamide in the food causes cancer. The court is scheduled to hear Newman's motion on August 6th. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from the break. Uh, so, Bob, let's go over, because I think the education here is so important in terms of how people receive it. You were editor of, of, of the International, the Journal of International Law, the ABA magazine. Am I correct on that during, during the period? The um, International Lawyer. Yeah, the International Lawyer. Oh. Yes, I was the editor. 
achieved from 83 to 88, um, and made great inroads in developing the journal. The journals are uh, uh, fragile, fragile enti entities, and they need they need continuing leadership and product and reprocessing of articles and development of articles and so on and so forth. But I use that as a um, an effort to grow the uh, uh, section of international law of the ABA, but also to uh, represent or reflect because there were no and uh, journals of consequence at the time that recognized the, the relationship of practice to the legal scholarship uh, that could come out of a, of a journal of that nature. Yeah. And so I concentrated on that aspect of, of pro providing practice practitioners with uh, useful articles about developments and, uh, and, and issues um, that would be helpful to them in their in in the practice or appreciating the trends and developments in in the legal system. Yeah, that's so important. You know, it's interesting this split between two two things. First, the split between the academy and the practice, which a great many people have commented on, how to bring it together. But more, the way lawyers are obtaining information and doing training today uh, has moved away from simply uh, subscriptions to magazines, uh, the electronic comment, the electronic connections, uh, whether emails that alert people. I, you get the sense in, in terms of keeping up, people prefer shorter pieces, prefer them to come electronically, prefer to keep up in other ways that either are on social media or function like social media. And that is, and that is part of the challenge in terms of education and everyone keeping up. The other thing that's very significant of what you've spoken about and mentioned is the law school, the academy, and the practitioners. There are very few people that have done what you've done. Uh, some, but not many. We did a podcast, I did a podcast a little while ago with Richard Lazarus from the Harvard Law School, who's done the same thing in environment, environmental law. He not only is one of the leading environmental theorists and practitioners, but he's trained generations of environmental lawyers. And that's what you've done. That's the challenge, because especially in an area like international law, where being able to handle the law in a sophisticated way is so much a part of the practice, and where a lot of interaction is with very knowledgeable general counsel who represent clients, uh, the, the, doing what the academy does, which is giving the educational background, is a, is a very significant part of the quality of the practice that's developed. And that's one of the things that you focused on at Southwestern, isn't it? In helping to develop international law practitioners who can function at the highest level. I think um, Southwestern uh, offers students a real opportunity to get exposed to these types of issues. We, <clears throat> we exist uh, now 110 years we've existed uh, here in Los Angeles, and uh, some of us, some of us like to think that we are LA's law school uh, because it reflects the diversity of 
of our community, uh, which is extremely diverse and um, provides um, access for uh, a, a range of capable students um, that some of the other institutions don't provide for. We also are nimble in the sense that we are a freestanding institution, which is still rare in uh, uh, American legal education. Uh, and that allows us, however, to be innovative and uh, productive in that, in that way. And I think um, the school has accomplished a lot in its 110 years. It's accomplished a great um, deal, and, I, and it's good you've mentioned it and we're talking about it. Southwestern has always been a foundation of the Los Angeles legal community. It has had enormous impact in Los Angeles and its graduates who've gone on to every level of practice, the judiciary and government. And what's interesting about what you've done is Southwestern through you has also led the development of international legal practice and training uh, in Los Angeles. So Southwestern is just an outstanding legal institution with enormous impact on LA practice. And, and I think because of you and some others uh, impact on practice uh, throughout the country and I think the world in terms of what you accomplished and in terms of, of what you've done. Tell us some of the work as, as, we, as we talk more. You're now very actively involved again with the ABA Section International Law in the Senior Lawyers uh, Committee uh, of, of the section. Tell us about that because that's become so important a part of adaptation of law practice. Yeah, a few years ago I became a senior. <laughs> Therefore, I uh, I started thinking, well, I've contributed a, a lot of time and effort to the section of international law, uh, but it has its leaders now. And, you know, and I was sat on the council uh, for a number of years uh, and still do, but as an ad hoc member, ex officio member. But um, I thought, well, the senior lawyers uh, is a developing organization, number one. Um, it's available to all um, members of the American Bar Association who are 60, 62 years or older, and those uh, and to others who may have a special interest in senior issues. And, and so I, I put in, uh, I let the powers that be know Known, know that I was interested in some uh, working with them in some capacity. And all of a sudden I get appointed to a new committee that did have, had no description, but it had a description in its name and that was the International Committee. And uh, one of my uh, colleagues who has served as chair of the section of international law after I did, quite a few years after I did, uh, uh, was also named as co-chair, and we, we've always worked nicely together. So it was a nice uh, marriage, so to speak. And three years ago, we started working to try to create uh, something out of this uh, committee, and we've grown it several hundred members. Um, the division itself, the Senior Lawyers Division, numbers almost 50,000 members. So it's a nice group to potentially deal with. Um, I found that there weren't a lot of 
people who were really actively in, involved. And so one of the things we decided to do was develop programming on a monthly basis in lieu of a, of a meeting of business and so on. We carry that on by email and telephone, but uh, with the leadership, but, but uh, to actually uh, produce something that would be of value to our membership. So we pick out a topic, get experts involved and do a Zoom meeting like this uh, for an hour once a month. And in doing that, um, it also occurred to us that we could offer the services of senior lawyers who are retired or semi-retired in a pro bono capacity to um, serve uh, in some capacity uh, forms of, provide forms of technical legal assistance. And the Commerce Department, uh, we discovered, has a program called the Commercial Law Development Program, which seeks through the embassies of the different uh, U.S. embassies throughout the world, uh, um, connections with the countries, uh, primarily developing countries and post-conflict countries, to develop their commercial legal system. And um, I got wind of this and worked with the people that are in commerce. And we put together a program where we outreach to the membership of, of uh, the committee, the International Committee of the Senior Lawyers, to invite them to participate in different projects that co this commercial law development program is involved in. in uh, different uh, countries of the world, and they're quite broad um, in Africa, in South America, in in Asia, uh, in uh, Eurasia, in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, there are projects in virtually all those countries, and they call for specialized expertise. And what I do is try to recruit from our membership people who have the skills um, that are needed or the experience that are needed. And amazingly, there are um, partners from major law firms that have practiced in the area of financial uh, issues, for example, or uh, in the customs area or whatever. And they, they meet the criteria qualifications of the, of the Commerce Department perfectly. And so we, we, we marry them and um, so far, we've only been existing for a couple of months, but uh, I've been able to place about eight or nine people. That's been, you know what, and there may be some of you listening to this podcast may yourself want, want to get involved. You know, this is a huge societal issue uh, that, that you are dealing with and will play a major role in. Uh, the estimate now is that all the children born in the, of all the children born in the United States in 2019, 50% will live to be over 100. We are dealing with a major change. I've been a senior longer longer than you have, and we're dealing with a major change in the scope of people's professional life. There is at least one law firm in New York, I, I won't mention the name, but it's a very well-known firm, that has told its incoming lawyers to expect 
to leave the firm essentially using the word retire at the age of 55, that you'll work hard for 30 years, you'll work very hard, but plan at 55 to have your financial affairs in order to no longer be with the firm unless something truly exceptional happens. So you're looking at entering into a period where half the people born in 2019 and a substan substantial number now alive will live to over 100. We have an old model of, of retirement in, in the mid-60s uh, that, that no longer will fit the demographics, the lifespan uh, that is coming in the current decades. And dealing with that, both in how people function in their own lives and in how needs are met, is a huge thing that you are doing at this point in addition to everything else that you've done in your life, working through the Commerce Department, giving the kind of advice overseas that otherwise would be priceless, matching up the existence of those skills with where they are needed. Uh, but it also can be thought of, and just in addition to all the amazing things you've done in your life, can be thought of as pathbreaking, another pioneering effort in dealing with these major demographic changes uh, that, are, that, that have come and are, and are coming even more forcefully. And so, Robert Lutz, in talking to you, it's clear even as we talk about what you're doing now, you're carrying on a lifetime of pioneering effort that has made you a giant in international law, in international law practice in California, in legal education, and it is appropriate that the Southwestern Journals do the Feshrift, that Southwestern celebrate the work that you've done, and we're really delighted and honored you took the time to do this podcast uh, as part of a discussion of so many of the important areas and helping people to realize what you've achieved in your life. Congratulations and thank you, Bob. Thank you so much.